This is Chapter Nine of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter Nine. We passed Fort Laramie in the night, and on the seventh morning out, we found ourselves in the Black Hills, with Laramie Peak at our elbow, apparently looming vast and solitary, a deep dark, rich indigo-blue in hue, so portentously did the old colossus frown under his beetling brows of storm-cloud. He was thirty or forty miles away, in reality, but he only seemed removed a little beyond the low ridge at our right. We breakfasted at Horseshoe Station, six hundred and seventy-six miles out from St. Joseph. We had now reached a hostile Indian country and during the afternoon we passed La Perelle Station, and enjoyed great discomfort all the time we were in the neighborhood, being aware that many of the trees we dashed by at arm's length concealed a lurking Indian or two. During the preceding night an ambushed savage had sent a bullet through the pony rider's jacket, but he had ridden on just the same, because pony riders were not allowed to stop and inquire into such things except when killed. As long as they had life enough left in them, they had to stick to the horse and ride, even if the Indians had been waiting for them a week, and were entirely out of patience. About two hours and a half before we arrived at La Parelle Station, the keeper in charge of it had fired four times at an Indian, but he said, with an injured air, that the Indian had skipped round so's to spile everything, and ammunition's blamed scarce, too. The most natural inference conveyed by his manner of speaking was that, in skipping around, the Indian had taken an unfair advantage. The coach we were in had a neat hole through its front, a reminiscence of its last trip through this region. The bullet that made it wounded the driver slightly, but he did not mind it much. He said the place to keep a man huffy was down on the southern overland, among the Apaches, before the company moved the stage line up on the northern route. He said the Apaches used to annoy him all the time down there, and that he came as near as anything to starving to death in the midst of abundance, because they kept him so leaky with bullet-holes that he couldn't hold his victuals. This person's statement were not generally believed. We shut the blinds down very tightly that first night in the hostile Indian country, and lay on our arms. We slept on them some, but most of the time we only lay on them. We did not talk much, but kept quiet and listened. It was an inky black night, and occasionally rainy. We were among woods and rocks, hills and gorges, so shut in, in fact, that when we peeped through a chink in a curtain we could discern nothing. The driver and conductor on top were still, too, or only spoke at long intervals in low tones, as in the way of men in the midst of invisible dangers. We listened to raindrops pattering on the roof, and the grinding of the wheels through the muddy gravel, and the low wailing of the wind, and all the time we had that absurd sense upon us, inseparable from travel at night in close-curtained vehicle, the sense of remaining perfectly still in one place, notwithstanding the jolting and swaying of the vehicle, the trampling of the horses, and the grinding of the wheels. We listened a long time, with intent faculties and bated breath. Every time one of us would relax, and draw a long sigh of relief, and start to say something, 
a comrade would be sure to utter a sudden hark, and instantly the experimenter was rigid and listening again. So the tiresome minutes and decades of minutes dragged by, until at last our tense forms filmed over with a dulled consciousness, and we slept, if one might call such a condition by so strong a name, for it was a sleep set with a hair-trigger. It was a sleep seething and teeming with a weird and distressful confusion of shreds and fag-ends of dreams, a sleep that was a chaos. Presently dreams and sleep and the sullen hush of the night were startled by a ringing report, and cloven by such a long, wild, agonizing shriek. Then we heard ten steps from the stage. "'Help! Help! Help!' it was our driver's voice. "'Kill him! Kill him like a dog! I'm being murdered! Will no man lend me a pistol? Look out! Head him off! Head him off!' Two pistol-shots a confusion of voices and the trampling of many feet, as if a crowd were closing and surging together round some object, several heavy, dull blows, as with a club, a voice that said appealingly, "'Don't, gentlemen, please don't, I'm a dead man!' Then a fainter groan and another blow, and away sped the stage into the darkness, and left the grisly mystery behind us. What a startle it was! Eight seconds would amply cover the time it occupied. Maybe even five would do it. We only had time to plunge at a curtain and unbuckle and unbutton part of it in an awkward and hindering flurry, when our whip cracked sharply overhead, and we went rumbling and thundering away down a mountain grade. We fed on that mystery the rest of the night, what was left of it, for it was waning fast. It had to remain a present mystery, for all we could get from the conductor in answer to our hails was something that sounded through the clatter of the wheels like— tell you in the morning. So we lit our pipes and opened the corner of a curtain for a chimney, and lay there in the dark, listening to each other's story of how he first felt and how many thousand Indians he first thought had hurled themselves upon us, and what his remembrance of the subsequent sounds was, and the order of their occurrence. And we theorized, too, but there was never a theory that would account for our driver's voice being out there nor yet account for his Indian murderers talking such good English, if they were Indians. So we chatted and smoked the rest of the night comfortably away, our boding anxiety being somehow marvelously dissipated by the real presence of something to be anxious about. We never did get much satisfaction about that dark occurrence. All that we could make out of the odds and ends of the information we gathered in the morning was that the disturbance occurred at a station that we changed drivers there, and that the driver that got off there had been talking roughly about some of the outlaws that infested the region, for there wasn't a man around there but had a price on his head and didn't dare show himself in the settlements, the conductor said. He had talked roughly about these characters, and ought to have drove up there with his pistol cocked and ready on the seat alongside of him, and begun business himself, because any softy would know they would be laying for him. That was all we could gather, and we could see that neither the conductor nor the new driver were much concerned about the matter. They plainly had little respect for a man who would deliver offensive opinions of people and then be so simple as to come into their presence unprepared to back his judgment, as they pleasantly phrased the killing of any fellow-being who did not like said opinions. And likewise they plainly had a contempt for the man's poor discretion in venturing to rouse the wrath of such utterly reckless wild beasts as those outlaws. And, the conductor added, 
I tell you it's as much as Slade himself want to do." This remark created an entire revolution in my curiosity. I cared nothing now about the Indians, and even lost interest in the murdered driver. There was such magic in that name, Slade. Day or night now, I stood always ready to drop any subject in hand to listen to something new about Slade and his ghastly exploits. Even before we got to Overland City we had begun to hear about Slade and his division, for he was a division agent on the Overland, and from the hour we had left Overland City we had heard drivers and conductors talk about only three things—California, the Nevada silver mines, and this desperado Slade. And a deal the most of the talk was about Slade. We had gradually come to have a realizing sense of the fact that Slade was a man whose heart and hands and soul were steeped in the blood of offenders against his dignity, a man who awfully avenged all injuries, affront, insults, or slights, of whatever kind, on the spot if he could, years afterward, if lack of earlier opportunity compelled it, a man whose hate tortured him day and night till vengeance appeased it, and not an ordinary vengeance either but his enemy's absolute death, nothing less. A man whose face would light up with a terrible joy when he surprised a foe, and had him at a disadvantage. A high and efficient servant of the overland, an outlaw among outlaws, and yet their relentless scourge. Slade was at once the most bloody, the most dangerous, and the most valuable citizen that inhabited the savage fastnesses of the mountains. End of chapter 9